0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
1: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
0: With us today is Jane Alexander, certainly a name that we're familiar with. She won her Tony several seasons ago for The Great White Hope on Broadway, has been in a slew of movies, has uh, four Oscar nominations for The Great White Hope, All the President's Men, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Testament, and currently is appearing here in New York in a show called What of the Night. Jane, what of the night? What? What is the show? You you are one of the writers of it, and you're starring in it.
2: hmm Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. uh what of the Night, Watchman, What of the Night. That's one of the major chapters in Juna Barnes' famous book, Nightwood. And so a lot of this piece that we're doing, and it's a solo piece, performance piece. I would also say maybe performance art piece, because it really, really draws on her writing. So What of the Night is, um, as I say, the great chapter in the, in the book, Nightwood.
1: You you say performance art, so I'll leap right into it. You've you've taken a writer who probably saying cult would be a little too strong, but not not a writer that's in the most common pop culture mainstream. And yet the approach you've taken is very different than the classic one-person show where it's sort of like you've been invited into somebody's salon to have them tell you their story. The approach here is very different, yet with a figure who isn't all that familiar to the general audience. What drew you to Juna Barnes and and why did you choose this approach?
2: My director, Birgitta Tromler, is a well-known choreographer mainly but also directs opera primarily in uh, Germany, in Darmstadt, Germany, and in other cities in Germany. Brigitte brought the project to me about two years ago. Germany knows a lot about Juna Barnes because her letters were published there maybe five, ten years ago. They have not been published in the United States yet. This was fascinating to me. I would be walking the streets of Germany. I'd go into a cleaners because I was there for a couple of months last year when we did the project there. And um, I'd say, well, I'm, I'm here doing a, a play about Juna Barnes. They'd say, Juna Barnes, oh, I must come. So that was very, very interesting to me. I think once we get the word out to you know, certain people in the in, in, who would be interested in reading Nightwood, her great book – um I think that we're going to have a lot – a real revival of of Juna Barnes' work. Hmm.
1: But you say that it originated with Brigitte Tromler and – but there are two other people, yourself and a dramaturg credited for, for working on the piece. What was the piece before you came into it and, and what – I mean obviously as a performer, we understand what you bring to it. But I presume with a created by credit that you really had, had a role in shaping it from beyond the point that Brigida may have had in her head when she started developing it.
2: That's right. Birgitta, uh being German and being coming from the dance world, is very visually oriented. And originally the piece was an awful lot of movement and uh, visual effects and not a lot of language. And Juna Barnes' language is very rich. It's dense. It's like James Joyce. It's like stream of consciousness often. But... It is rich and wonderful, and both Noreen, uh, Noreen Tomasi, the dramaturg, is an American too, as well as myself. Uh, we both felt, well, let's make use of this language, if, if only using Dr. Matthew Mighty, Grain of Salt, Dante O'Connor's wonderful monologue. Um, he goes on, actually, for over 100 pages in Nightwood. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Ah, that would have been a longer show. <laughs> yes, indeed.
2: <laughs> Here I only do it for seven minutes. So, <laughs> But he's such a rich character. And at first, Birgitta was very hesitant to bring in any language like this. And we said, no, we think we can bring in text and make this even a richer experience for the audience. And I think we've succeeded. It is, it is a mixture of movement, of visual effects of going back and forth in time. Um, in, well, it's go- inter-
1: you mentioned the visual effects because now even the fact that they're, they're, much of the performance is literally amidst projections of letters. Yes. Not, not written letters, but but typographic letters just as if struck on a keyboard. That's that right. That you're performing in the midst of all that. So it certainly moved into the literary um, just from the motion in an interesting way.
2: Bergita very much wanted to... The audience to peer into Juna Barnes' mind, if it was possible. Juna Barnes is a very interesting person in that she was highly celebrated in Paris in the 20s and 30s. Uh, Nightwood came out in the mid-30s, but she was already well-known as a writer. In fact, they felt Gertrude Stein and Juna Barnes were the great American writers in Paris at the time. And then she came back in 1940 to the United States and essentially became reclusive for the next... Well, she died in 82, hmm. 42 years of her life. She lived in one room in Patchen Place in Greenwich Village, and she didn't go out of it very often, and she only saw the people that she wanted to see. So, Brigida was very interested in this, what was going on in this woman's mind, to be so celebrated, to be very beautiful, Known for her beauty and for her writing, and then become essentially a recluse.
0: Now, in preparation for your own performance in uh, in What of the Night, you certainly, you know, read her her works. Did you do any research yourself into her as a person, her character, or anything about her?
2: Yeah, sure. I read. Uh, I I almost always, John, do pretty extensive research um, to the degree that I can. I mean, I spent time at the University of Maryland reading some writings and letters of hers. I read, um, I would say, three quarters of her, her work. The one I really, really adore is Nightwood. And I must have read that now 12 times.
1: Hmm.
2: The first time I read it, when Brigitte gave it to me, I said, I can't make head nor tail of this piece. So, so it's,
1: it's not that you knew DeJuna Barnes before you were approached about this piece. This was, this wasn't like a lifelong love of yours. This was just you became fascinated once the material was brought to you.
2: That's right. I knew the name Juna Barnes because you don't forget a name that's spelled D J U N. Juna
1: Barnes and Django Reinhardt, basically. Exactly. There you go.
2: Yeah. And I remembered um, something about Juna Barnes being a, a well-known down in Greenwich Village and that when she did go out, she wore a black cape. Well, a lot of people wore black capes, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's about all I knew. And then I was she gave me Nightwood. And I couldn't make head and tail of the first reading. It took me three weeks to get through a 180-page book. Mm -hmm. She said, give it another try. Now, we're talking about a German woman telling an American Mm. woman to read this American writer. So um, I read it again. Now, as I say, I'm on my 12th or 13th reading, and I just can't stay away from it. I love it. The language is dense and wonderful.
0: As you reread it, what are you discovering new that you didn't see the 10th time or the 11th time or the 12th time around that you've read it?
2: Well she she's um essentially writing poetry uh-huh. you know it's 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 poetry in prose so it's difficult to understand the metaphors often so it takes it takes some doing it takes some effort on one's part to read it but like James Joyce it is very rewarding ultimately
0: Now the Great White Hope was originally something like seven and a half hours long. It was reduced to about two and a half hours and even shorter for the movie version. What about One of the Night when you first had it assembled? You mentioned something before about going from 100 pages down to a seven-minute section. <laughs> How about this show? Was this a much longer show originally? Did you have to cut it down?
2: No. In fact, it was much shorter. Really? We had to plump it up. Oh. Uh, we, we felt um, – in Germany, it came in at around 54 minutes. Uh-huh. Um, And I felt for a New York audience charging $45 a ticket, you simply could not do that. You had to give them a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So that's when we began to um, plump up the narrative and the story a little bit more. And it's 90 percent Juna Barnes' own writing, all of it. I see. Mm -hmm. And she she really knew how to deliver bon mots and (laughs) wonderful phrases.
1: You... I assume that you performed it in English when you did it over in Germany originally. And were you primarily getting English-speaking audiences or given the visual basis of it, were you getting people also who didn't speak English coming to see the piece?
2: Oh, it was primarily Germans. Really? German-speaking? Yes. Yes. Hmm. And again, it was a small theater. It was a lab theater. It was 100 seats. Uh um, And the the Lucille Lortel is 199. So... um, it's not the kind of piece you want to do on a very much bigger stage. You know, it really demands a more intimate... Well,
0: how, how fluent are, are Germans in general, and your audiences in particular, in English? Don't don't most Europeans know at least some English? Yes. enough to, to be able to understand... Most Euro- a lot better yeah. than we are
1: with German, languages.
2: that's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And Germans are quite wonderful in that they're multilingual. And uh, even when they didn't understand what was going on, they... They, they seem to understand the visuals very clearly. They got the picture, and they know Juna Barnes. Most uh-huh. of them know Juno mm-hmm. Barnes' work. And and she's been translated extensively in Germany. Mm. So
0: feedback from German audiences versus American audiences, what sort of reactions do you get or did you get from the Germans compared to the Americans? They were obviously much more familiar with Juna Barnes than the Americans are.
2: Um, they German audiences are... Probably some of the most attentive audiences in the world. <laughs> they're, they're intellectual.
0: You will pay attention. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, <Kind of. laughs> I don't know.
2: No, but they're fascinated and they're very attentive. Wow. I, uh, uh, sometimes it's alarming to me because they don't laugh very much when American audiences would laugh. Mm-hmm. And they don't show a lot of emotion. They don't seem to even – I can't feel them. You're in not the same, getting a lot
1: back. Mm-hmm. I can't feel, the feel them lights.
2: in the same way that I feel – uh, American audiences, but at the end, my gosh, they give you curtain call after curtain call hmm. uh sometimes I just think it's de rigueur. I think that's what they do, mm-hmm. even when they don't like it. Hmm. American audiences are much more demonstrative, and I know what they're where they're
1: they're at and how do you like being a company of one? Is this your first one person show?
2: This is my first one person show in the theater. I've done it for television, hmm. uh, which wasn't a lonely experience at all because well, you, you have all, those people, all those people around you. And But um, I find it um, lonely and um, tough, tough because you're it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, we've got some wonderful visuals they can look at, but uh, uh, I've really got to keep them going. And I'm, as you know, I play several different characters, so – it's very challenging.
0: And if you have problems remembering a line, there's no one out there to save you. There's no safety net, so to speak. <laughs> That's right.
2: That has both its good and bad points. Sometimes I just wing it and make up all kinds of
3: stuff. <laughs> and you don't have to worry about I don't have anybody, anybody else to w- Exactly. I just can time, do it whatever
2: I want. The stage manager gets a little flustered, but other than that.
1: <laughs> She'll get back on track eventually, right? That's right.
0: <laughs>
2: well,
1: can we can we take you back uh, because you came out of – the regional theaters in America, and certainly John referenced Great White Hope, but that came out of you'd been working at Arena Stage, and and you've worked you worked a lot in, in that arena. Um, can you tell us about the Great White Hope experience? Because I even saw something that said that you actually auditioned a couple of times for Arena and Zelda Fitchhandler had said no. So so how'd you break through to what actually certainly became a breakthrough role for you?
2: Well, thanks. I I was I really, really wanted to go to Arena or I wanted to go to the regional theaters and do the classics as a young actress. And Zelda, Fitchhandler rightly, as you say, Howard, she just uh, twice just said, don't call us, we'll call you, goodbye. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then uh, the third time, um, Theater Communications Group said, you know, Arena's doing St. Joan. I mean, I was all, what, 23 years old or something. Um, But I knew that part. Boy, did I know it and I wanted to do it. And Ed Sharon um, was the artistic director, the new artistic director. And I went up and I auditioned and he said, oh, yeah, she's got to be part of our company and she's playing Joan. So that was it.
1: Well, we, we, we ultimately know that Ed Sharon really liked you. He, he did
2: really like me <laughs> yeah. and I really liked him. But that was when him. you first met him? And I think we got married, what, about <laughs> ten years later. <laughs>
1: it took that long, ten years? <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: we were both married to other people. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so Saint Joan, and then, and then, how did Great White Hope come about? That was Great
2: White Hope was a project in the third, my third year there, Mm -hmm. in 1967, at Arena, and it, (laughs) it was the first reading, seven hours long. Wow! Wow! It was immense. immense epic drama by Howard Sackler about the great Jack Johnson, whom many people now are very well acquainted with because of Ken Burns' wonderful films for public television. Um, And uh, so then uh, when we did it at Arena, I think it came in just under four hours. And when we did it on Broadway, it was like, three hours and 15 or something and then when we did it in the movies it was an hour and 20 minutes
0: wow mm. but now to cut it down there must have been a lot of good material ending up on the cutting room floor so oh, to speak
2: wonderful material wonderful speeches but you know film is essentially a visual medium so you can't mm. really throw in a lot of grief. Oh, for film certainly yeah. yeah but
0: to go from seven plus hours down to about three three and a quarter still represents a lot of cutting
2: right a lot Thank God I didn't have to do it.
0: Yeah. Was there any major surgery done on, on, on your role? Was that pretty well survived?
2: Um, I don't remember major surgery. Uh-huh. No, I think some speeches definitely, mm-hmm. and maybe a couple of scenes that James Earl Jones and I had together.
0: And you both won Tonys
1: for that, so
2: yeah, we did, and we got both got Academy Award nominations for the movie, so.
1: Well, and that, so you had, it was interesting, you went from not being able to get a foot in the door at Arena to becoming a company member to having the show come out of Arena, win you a Tony. And it seemed from that moment on, you were constantly going back and forth between film, television, and the stage. I mean, it's it was it was just a blossoming of, of roles for you.
2: It was a very exciting um, decade or two decades, the 70s and the 80s. You're right. I just, I, it was nonstop. It seemed nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, films, television, the great miniseries, uh, Eleanor and Franklin. Absolutely. Um, you know, we forget that the '70s had these abs- remarkable miniseries. Well, that was Roots kind, of, kind and, of
0: the age of the miniseries. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yes, and um, the the uh, the bi- uh, what was it called? The autobiography of Miss Jane. Jane Pittman. Pittman. Right. Remember sure. with Cicely Tyson? TV beautiful, yep. beautiful work. And and then Eleanor and Franklin,
1: and that and and when you mention Eleanor and Franklin, both for you and Edward Herman, these these even became themes that have continued on. I mean, from movies that you did, because I think you've both been asked to go back and do various narrations at times, or even appear as those characters again at different mm-hmm. times.
2: And I just did Sarah Delano Roosevelt for uh, the HBO special Warm Springs, which will. Air later this April.
1: So now, I mean, you're you're kind of the go-to person for the Roosevelt <laughs> women. <laughs>
2: well, I'm one of many.
1: <laughs> <laughs> had
0: you ever met Eleanor Roosevelt?
2: I had. Um, when right. I went to Sarah Lawrence College uh-huh. for a couple of years, and she came to speak there, and I just went up afterwards and told her how much I admired her.
0: I had a similar experience in junior high school. She was the first celebrity I ever met <laughs> at oh. the junior high school. It was quite you know moving. Yeah. Obviously, I knew who she was and her whole, you know, legacy, her whole history, to meet somebody as big as that. And here you got to portray her. How did you prepare for that?
2: Well, fortunately, ABC television kept postponing the shooting of it. They weren't sure that anybody would be interested in the Roosevelt's. So Edward Herman and I had two years to do research. Wow which was pretty exciting. And I lived not far from Hyde Park at the time, so I was up there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I listened to tapes after tapes after tapes of her voice, and it was a great time.
0: What What most struck you about her, about Eleanor Roosevelt, the person?
2: Her compassion, mm-hmm. truly. And I think it came directly out of her own experience, her childhood, her... Um, truly um, uh, uh, emotionally poverty-stricken childhood.
1: Um. Now, earlier we, we talked about your first meeting with Ed Sharon and that 10 years later you married him, but you have repeatedly throughout your career worked together. and And I'm just wondering about how that relationship has grown or changed as you've gone through your lives together because any director-actor relationship is has a particular dynamic as does any marriage. And how how has that gone for you, going from simply being uh, colleagues to, to truly being partners?
2: Uh, we really love working together. We don't get to do it enough. <clears throat> but even on What of the Night, um, I treasure his... His remarks and notes to me, which are always succinct and cut right to the chase, and I can translate them immediately, and they're always wonderful. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, we haven't worked together now. We did Ghosts, Ibsen's Ghosts, two years ago, and Ed updated and modernized that and put it in the 1980s, and it became about AIDS, and that was an exciting experience. And to where work did you? Where that. was that again? Though? We did that at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington in D.C. DC. Right. Yeah. So we do get to work together, and now we have two of our boys. Um, my son Jace Alexander is a director, and I did a little movie with him for Showtime last year. Well, and there's I just got... an even more
1: interesting dynamic having your son directing. You. I know. <laughs>
2: and I just got nominated for a daytime Emmy for that one, for a children's thing. So I was, I was totally flabbergasted because there's only one scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway... So I said, Jace, you can direct me anytime, too. (laughs) Anytime you want. (laughs) He's pretty terrific. And then we have another, our oldest boy, uh, my eldest stepson, Tony Sharon, is a documentary filmmaker.
0: Hmm. So kind of the whole family is involved in one way or another.
2: Much of our family is involved in show business. So youngest, John, is a a, um, brain doctor Hmm. in California, so... Thank God we have one in the family. You have someone, you have someone to you The, the uh, <laughs> black sheep in the family. Where, where did he go wrong, right? right.
0: <laughs> now, when you work with your husband, uh, what, what have you worked in or on with him besides Ghost? What, what
2: We've worked on um, – we did uh, A Marriage, O'Keefe and Stieglitz, uh-huh. which was an American Playhouse production, uh, a, a film about George O'Keefe and Alfred Stieglitz. I played O'Keefe and Chris Plummer played Stieglitz. And we've done a couple of other films together, Calamity Jane, the one-woman show for CBS Cable, and um, a television movie.
0: How about Law & Order?
2: And Law and Order, yes. So he, thank you. We, we
0: should mention he is the executive producer of Law and Order. He was. Was he?
2: He, he retired from that position after eight years because it was it was a pretty exhausting job. It's uh-huh. really round the clock working with the editors and the writers and everything. Uh-huh. So that was a lot of fun too. We did the crossover at SVU and Law and Order.
0: Where, where do you make your home? The East Coast, or the West Coast, or oh, bi coastal? No, Definitely right New here. York.
2: Right here. We just moved to Westchester County.
0: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer the? The, the the vitality, shall we say, of New York and the East Coast, or I, you, you've done I, a lot of work in Hollywood.
2: Yes, but um, and we've even had a place in Hollywood. But uh, and and John, the brain doctor, is out in Hollywood. Our youngest. <laughs> he, but I just um, I, I'm an Easterner, totally well, down to my toes. I I couldn't ever live out in California.
0: How, how about when it comes to working? you prefer one medium to another stage versus film versus television
2: i'd always prefer stage if i had my choice because however um you can't make a living at it much (laughs) anymore unless you're starring on broadway Uh in a big musical so i i really am very grateful for what film makes possible
1: well as we talk about cities i think we should talk about I don't know that it's necessarily a career detour but you clearly had a major shift in your emphasis for a period of time in the mid-90s when you were the head of the National Endowment for the Arts at a very difficult time in that organization's history. And you went from being a performer interpreting the words of others to being a key spokesman and a key advocate for the arts here in America – at, as I said, this difficult time, the Gingrich years. Um, <laughs> that must have been stunningly different for you to be in that role. And and can you just tell us a little about that era for you?
2: Well, thanks for asking. It's, uh, it, it It was a call that I felt I couldn't refuse because I really felt that I was beholden to the National Endowment for the Arts for all the regional theater work I did including Arena Stage, including the Great White Hope, which began with an NEA grant of $25,000 to Howard Sackler to produce it or develop it at the Arena Stage. I knew what the agency
1: did for people. so And where did this come from? Who, who said, go get Jane Alexander? Who, who is whispering in Bill Clinton's ear?
2: Well, I think now it's clear to me who, who it was, but it wasn't at the time. Um, Bobby Handman who um, is um, very prominent in People for the American Way. Her husband, Wynne Hanman, is the director and producer of um, theater in the in New York here. The American teaching. Place Theater. Right, yep. that's right. So I think it was Bobby
1: hmm.
2: who had access to the presidents here and Hillary Clinton who suggested it, and Milan Verveer, um, their assistant.
1: But not the usual call from your agent. No, <laughs> <laughs> hardly. And hardly. you you kind of put your own performing
0: career on hold for about four years while you headed up the NEA, and you basically stumped to get money uh, restored because they had been cutting the budget dramatically.
2: Well, they they really began cutting it, as Howard said. Those were the Gingrich years mm-hmm. when the hundred and fourth Congress came in, was elected in in um, nineteen ninety five. Oh boy, things started to really deteriorate for. A lot of cultural organizations in the government, Woodrow Wilson uh, Fellowships, the um, uh, uh, PBS, public television and so on, everything was under fire. And uh, the NEA was top of the hit list. So they did cut the budget about 45% during the four years that I was there. but we did win. You know, they wanted to eliminate the agency, mm-hmm. and we did uh, persevere, and all the people in the country who really felt strongly about it weighed in, and uh, it, it, we, it was saved by one vote, and well, that was very exciting.
0: That was during the Clinton years. How about during the second Bush, this, the current president, during mm-hmm. his first and second terms? Where does the NEA stand nowadays?
2: Well, you know, once we, once we won that, um, there were members of Congress who said, okay, you won. It's bulletproof now. Nobody's going to touch it. I don't think that's true because I think things are cyclical, and yeah. it'll, and 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 it, and the attackers will come back if they want to. But they know right now that if they started to bring it up again and try to eliminate it, they'd have the same battle that we had back in the '90s, and it would be very, very hard.
1: It's it's worth noting that it was really, uh, it was a target. It was one of those talking point things where where the conservative movement decided this was something that they could pick on define by their own terms and demonize in order to go after simply for political gain. Indeed, talk individually to some Republicans, and they might say, you know, personally, they like the arts, but it was the idea of the agency that they seemed to want to pick on.
2: Yes, exactly. And they thought it was an easy target. They thought it would be easy to get rid of because there were some egregious grants um, that were, you know, they felt were easy targets Um, some of which I inherited from the previous Papa Bush administration. Uh, However, um, it didn't go down so easily because people really loved their arts, and they began to understand. I went all over the country. I went to 200 cities and towns in all 50 states, and once people made a connection between the National Endowment for the Arts and what their local arts... They hadn't made the connection a lot. I'd say, you know... This little dance group right here that is actually your, teaching your kid after school and performing for your community is an NEA-funded f- uh, or partially funded group. And well, t-
0: in- t- talking about uh, kids and about schools, that's often the place where kids are first introduced to the arts is in schools. And all too often when school budgets are put up for a vote, well, you can't cut science and math. You can't cut the football team. What about the arts? It's, it's a kind of an easy target.
2: always always number 1 to go.
0: So how does one in your position then heading the NEA or currently as just a, a performer in the arts, how do you how do you answer those people who want to cut the budgets and what do you say to them that, that you know keep keep our our money alive, keep the money coming in we we, we need the arts.
2: Yeah, well the NEA doesn't get into funding um, arts school, in the schools school too much. No, they no. do they do fund artists in the schools. Uh-huh. But uh, for a very limited amount of time because up to six weeks or sometimes eight weeks because the money just simply isn't there. But we work with the Department of Education. But what I say to people is, look, you're, you're, you're stifling the imaginations, the creative growth of your own kids when you take the arts out of the system, and it's good for all their subjects, you know, because they have to problem solve in a new and creative way. That's what the arts are about. It's coming up with ideas and and new ways to actually create something.
0: You know, it's interesting. Those same people who want to cut the budgets, they turn on the radio or the CD player. They play music. They go to movies. They go to shows. They go to artistic events and they enjoy them. And where would they be in their lives if you suddenly got rid of – Music certainly got yeah. rid of movies, television shows, yeah. and all that. You know, they they kind of fail to realize that's the
2: arts. And and we need a little more arts appreciation taught in the schools. We need good art history of all sorts, not just visual arts. We uh-huh. need good theater history. I mean, do you realize that there's been a massive dumbing down <laughs> of people in our country for theater, unfortunately. Um, so that they they want to go to be entertained primarily and not to be stimulated in another way to really be thinking and uh, what is this about, what does it have to say to me, what is it about my uh, our, my life that intersects with this play and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly it's um, entertainment now.
1: So for four years you are absolutely the head of and, and indeed a great spokesperson. It's worth noting that typically the heads of the NEA are are not people who have the public stature and public recognition that you had. You brought a real face and a recognition to it at a time when that was essential. How do you go from being that public face back into being a working actor and part of a team? What was what was the transition back to to theater and film and television work after those 4 years? It, it's it, it's interesting because I had
2: become so stamped as a politico for four years that it was hard to make for for people to understand that I was back as an actress again.
0: People being professionals or audiences? not
2: professionals so much, but well, I audiences. think audiences and everything. That was the first thing was always on their mind. Oh, the the National Endowment for the Arts chairman, mm. you know. Uh, but I think this is a phenomenon that happens with a lot of people. I mean, if, you, if you're if you on a TV series, you're stamped with that for a long time, and some actors never move out of that stamp. I was quite determined to get back to my acting career and uh, worked hard at it and did quite a few things. I, I wanted to play all the classics that I had not played in my life, and I got a chance to do quite a few in the past... Uh, Eight years since I left the NEA, and I did do a Broadway show almost right out. Right.
1: You went into Honor, honor almost immediately. Right,
2: almost immediately. Are there any
1: classics
0: that you have not done that are still on your list that you'd <laughs> like to do?
2: No, there's none on my list right now. <laughs> I have I've finished them, so I'm looking for for uh, new new work. Uh, but, you know, when you reach a future certain— Future classics. <laughs> future. There you go. But, um, I mean, there are a few Shakespeare roles, and there's always— a few classics left. Ibsen has some. But for my personal list, I've completed it, which is pretty great. <laughs> but at my age, you know, there's not really that many roles left uh, in the repertoire. <laughs> um, but that it's okay. There's always exciting work to be done. I mean, what of the night that I'm doing right now is very interesting and challenging. And exciting for me.
0: Are there any Roosevelt roles you haven't played yet? You (laughs) (laughs) haven't played Franklin yet. I haven't played uh, Fala,
2: (laughs) the dog. (laughs) And and any and
1: Teddy Roosevelt's family.
2: (laughs) Oh my! Uh,
1: Coming back to the NEA for a minute, the difference of being the boss to being a company member, because you were in charge in a way that actors rarely have the opportunity to be. And first of all, how did you move into that structured governmental mindset? And then again, kind of then going back to subsuming yourself into into someone else's vision and someone else's work. Mm.
2: Well, it's, it's really a different mindset, Howard. The, it, an administrative mindset is quite different than a creative one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean to to say that. And you're And do you not... think
1: you were suited to an administrative mindset?
2: Not initially. Uh, although I do like – I'm pretty bossy. Oh,
1: really?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It helps. Uh, I didn't have any trouble telling my staff what I thought they needed to do. Uh, Fortunately, I surrounded myself with really good people, and that was just the fact that the White House had good candidates for me and also that I had a good intuitive sense about people's capabilities. I didn't have a a lemon in my – Nine executive st- staffers just below me, so uh, I was very fortunate, mm-hmm. and they did a, an awful lot of the, the day-to-day work. And
1: and you didn't come out of this, given the, the family penchant and your experience of being the boss, to be a director yourself.
2: No, i got too many stage. directors in the family. <laughs> My husband, two sons. I think that's enough. And a brain doctor. We don't need any more directors.
0: And you thought of becoming a brain doctor yourself? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think I'll pass on that one, John.
0: You'll just work on people's brains as, an, as a yes. performer, as an actor. Yeah. Well, you're running uh, at the Lucille Lortel Theater in Wad of the Night through April 23rd. Mm. Uh, beyond April twenty third, what are you looking at uh, for the summer, next fall, and anything on the horizon for you?
2: I, I'd uh, I'd like to just um, take take it uh, slow right now. Maybe a, a movie would be nice. And uh, I'm so looking forward. We've just moved next to our grandchildren, or some of our grandchildren. Uh-huh. We have six, and we have just moved literally one house away from three of them. So I'm really looking forward to that.
0: And on that note, Jane Alexander currently starring in the show What of the Night at the Lucille Lortel Theater and here in we New
1: York. should say a production of MCC Theater here in New York, producing at Lucille Lortel. Okay. That's right. MCC's
2: yeah, been very instrumental credits. in uh, making this possible. They've been great.
0: Well, thank you for joining us today, Jane Alexander on Downstage Center.
2: Thank you, John. Howard.
1: For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the educational and media programs of the American Theatre Wing are available as free, on-demand audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org And
0: for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.